Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Jim Casing will join us to discuss how to find a habitable planet. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show well one of the cont- questions that tickle the imagination is that of whether we are alone in the universe what is the probability that life exists on other planets are there other habitable planets in the universe and how can we go about finding them well joins today to discuss this issue is professor james casting professor casting is distinguished professor of geoscience at pennsylvania state university and a renowned expert on planetary atmospheric evolution and the search for habitable planets outside the solar system he has penned the new book, How to Find a Habitable Planet, which explores this topic for a general audience. And Professor Casting, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, hello. It's uh, really a pleasure to have you on the program. I think this is really a very fascinating book, How to Find a Habitable Planet. Just exactly what is the status of searching for habitable planets outside the solar system? Well, it's very active right now. As you may know, there's a telescope up right now called Kepler that is searching for transits of Earth-like planets, seeing the planets go across their star, the face of their stars, and it's looking at 100 to 150,000 stars, and there's a very good chance that within the next year or two, there'll be an announcement that there are Earth-like planets in the habitable zones of their stars. So you mentioned the habitable zone of of a star. What exactly is that? Well, that's defined conventionally as the region around a star where liquid water can exist on a planet's surface, as on Earth. And we think that's important not just for habitability, but in order for life to be present at the surface so that it can modify its atmosphere in a way that we might potentially detect. Presumption, then, that the uh, life would be uh, based on the same sorts of chemistry that we find here on Earth? That's the presumption that I make in my book. There are biochemists who think we should cast our net more broadly than that, which may make sense for our own solar system because we can go to places like Saturn's moon Titan and actually explore their surfaces. But if you're looking at remotely at planets around other stars, I think the conventional definition is the, the safest. I see. You start off your book with a lot of the uh, past thinking on life existing on other planets. For example, you bring up a very famous equation, the Drake equation. So that's an equation that was actually jointly developed by Frank Drake and Carl Sagan. Carl was known to have preferred the name Sagan-Drake equation for it. <laughs> but that was came out of a conference that they co-organized at Green Bank Radio Observatory back in 1964, I think it was. And they were both interested in not just in finding life, but finding intelligent life out there in the universe. What was their estimation of the, uh, the probability of finding uh, such life? Well, both Sagan and Drake were optimists, and so they jointly came up with estimates that there could be lots of other civilizations in the galaxy. The the key factor in the Drake equation is the, the seventh term out of seven, which is the lifetime of a technical civilization. And so this is where, if you're an optimist, you think that 
technical civilizations like ours live a long time. If you're a pessimist, you think they destroy themselves. So that's where most of the uncertainty in the equation boils down to. But really, the, the search for life is not really restricted to that of intelligent life, just any life in general, right? That's right. I, in my book, you know, we, I, I mentioned the search for intelligent life, which is carried on by this organization called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. But we're more focused on just looking for evidence of life itself, life that can modify a planet's atmosphere in a way that we might detect. I think that's a, an important first step before we go out looking for aliens. <laughs> what about the opposite pessimistic view that sort of on a rare Earth? Well, that's one of the things that I address in my book. There is another book that came out 10 years ago called Rare Earth by Peter Ward and Don Brownlee at the University of Washington. And they're pessimistic about the chances of finding advanced life, which they basically define as animal life. And of course, that includes intelligent life. So I'm more optimistic than them. And part of my book is devoted to sort of addressing some of their concerns. Well, you go into great detail in the book about just exactly how planets are formed in general and how habitable planets might be formed. I'm wondering if maybe you can give an overview of that. Right. Well, our solar system, we, th we thought we understood pretty well how planets formed when we only had our solar system to look at, because on our solar system, there's eight planets. Pluto doesn't count anymore. The four planets on the inside, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, are rocky planets, and we think that makes sense because rocks and iron, silicates and iron, condense out of the solar nebula at higher temperatures. And the four planets on the outside, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are classified as either gas giants or ice giants. And these are composed of materials that, that condense out at lower temperatures. You know, that, that makes sense for our solar system. What we found, what the astronomers have found, they, there's f over 400 planets known now outside our solar system, and they find Jovian-sized planets at close distances to their stars, these so-called hot Jupiters. So not all systems develop the way ours did. Isn't it the case that most of the systems that have been found have had these hot Jovian-type planets? Well, that's right, but that's probably a selection effect. Most of the planets that have been found are found by the Doppler method or radial velocity method where you're looking at the back and forth motion of the star in your line of sight. And that method is most sensitive to big planets orbiting close to their stars. So we think that as we extend our range of observations, we're going to find, we hope, at least I hope, that we'll find more systems that look like our own. What did it take for the Earth to become the habitable planet that it is? First of all, you've got to be the right distance from the sun within the habitable zone, and that is the case for Earth. But also, we think a planet has to be big enough. Earth is big enough. It's important for Size is important for two reasons. It, it needs to be able to hold on to its atmosphere. Mars is only about a tenth of Earth's mass, and it's lost a lot of its atmosphere. And second of all, a big planet maintains its internal heat, and that, you know, the internal heat, geothermal heat, is what drives plate tectonics on Earth. And we think that plate tectonics, which recycles carbonate rocks and puts CO2 back into the atmosphere, is an important part of the climate stabilization mechanism on Earth.
I see. And so the, all these mechanisms that are important for keeping the planet habitable then. That's right. Just keeping Earth habitable, it's, it's not so easy because the sun has been getting brighter with time. If you go back to four and a half billion years ago when the Earth and the sun formed, that we think the sun was about 30% less bright. So you have to have feedback mechanisms in the climate system. In particular, you have to have, probably have to have higher concentrations of greenhouse gases on the early Earth in order to keep it from freezing over. You know, there's a good explanation for why that happens on Earth, but this feedback mechanism doesn't work on Mars because Mars is too small to have plate tectonics. And what about Venus? Well, on Venus is almost the same size as Earth. It's about 80% of Earth's mass. Venus doesn't have plate tectonics, but Venus also doesn't have any water. And so Venus's basic problem was not its size. It, it, it was the obvious one. It's, it's too close to the sun. So in our models, Venus is inside the inner edge of the habitable zone. And so it lost its – it probably had water initially, but it lost it. And once it lost its water, it you know, developed this thick CO2 atmosphere. And that's probably also what caused plate tectonics to shut down. Intricate features involved in creating the right environments for life. Well, that's right, and and of course we may be wrong in some of our theories. We, you know, we have theories that seem to explain Venus, Earth, and Mars, and that's what I focus on in the first part of the book, actually. But find more planets out there, we we may find surprises as well. That's the exciting thing. One of the exciting things about studying extrasolar planets is that all of a sudden our data set expands greatly. You know, instead of eight planets, we now have 445, I think it is. Of course, right now we can't study those other planets very carefully. We can actually see, get spectra of some of the hot Jupiters, but eventually we want to be able to get spectra of Earth-sized planets, and then we'll be able to compare them more directly with uh, Earth, Venus, and Mars. What other methods are used uh, to actually search for planets? Well, another method that has been used a little bit or could be used to, uh, to a much greater extent is, is called astrometry. It's in the Doppler method, you're looking at the motion of the star back and forth in your line of sight. In astrometry, you're looking at the side-to-side and up-and-down wobble of the star in the plane of the sky. And it's very difficult to do that from the Earth's surface because the atmosphere you know, causes scintillation. It makes the stars appear to move. So there's a mission, though, called SIM or SIM Light, which uh, would do astrometry from space. And uh, if that gets funded, that, that could really uh, tell us a lot. That might be able to, we might be able to find if Earth-like planets existed around a, 100 or so nearby stars. They're also sort of a search for, you know, those chemical signatures, water and oxygen that would be around these planets. Well, that's what we ultimately want to do. And there are two different missions that are called terrestrial planet finder missions, which would try to directly take spectra of extrasolar planets. So to, to do that, what you'd want to do is separate out the light from the planet from the light from the star. And then when you take a spectrum, you break the light down into its component wavelengths, and you look for absorption bands of different gases. Now, those missions, uh, they're the most exciting missions in, in my view, but they're also more expensive, and there's no evidence that NASA's going to do that within the next few years. It may be 15 or 20 years before that actually happens. Uh, speaking of which, what is the will at NASA like uh, regarding the search for life generally and the search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence? 
Well, I would say NASA is very excited about doing this, but they need money to do it. It's not cheap. And there's there's other space missions that NASA also wants to do. And, and as you probably know, there's a big question about the future of the manned space program right now, which is under review. So NASA has lots of different ways that they want to spend money, and we do, we we would like to get these planet-finding missions towards the top of the list, but it's a difficult battle. How's the effort coordinated internationally? There's also a lot of astronomers in Europe working with the European Space Agency, ESA, who are interested in extrasolar planets. There are astronomers in Japan who are interested in this and in a number of other countries. And I think all of us realize that international collaboration, when when money is tight, as it is right now, international collaboration may be the way to get these big missions to go. What is kind of the general thinking about that seventh term that you mentioned in the the Drake equation, the sustainability of life on a planet, uh, this uh, idea of Gaia-like hypothesis where Earth kind of sustains a planet, and uh, recently we had on the program partially the opposite hypothesis, essentially life on the long is less sustaining for a planet. Yeah, that's actually Peter Ward, who is also the one of the authors of Rare Earth. His most recent book, if you were talking to Peter, is is called the Medea Hypothesis. You know, Gaia was that was Jim Lovelock's and Lynn Margulis's idea that life helped to stabilize a planet's environment. And Peter takes the opposite extreme view that life destabilizes the planet's climate. I think the truth is somewhere in between life influences the planet's environment, but and sometimes it's stabilizing, sometimes it's destabilizing. Well, what then is the, the general consensus then? You've so far found a lot of Jupiter-sized planets around other planets. Is there the real optimism that the Earth-like planets will be found as well? Well, I, I think most astronomers think that uh, that there are a lot of Earth-like planets. The models of planetary formation actually predict that there should be many Earth-like planets, more of them than there are gas giant planets. So they, you know, they're predicted by models. We we know why we haven't seen them. They're difficult to see, but there are you know these techniques that we're working on should be able to capable of detecting them. And as I said, the Kepler mission, which is up there right now, is should be capable of detecting Earth-sized planets, and it seems to be working very well. So we just need to stay tuned. If you were trying to find the Earth itself by the transit method, you have to wait till it goes in front of the sun and, be, of course, be looking at it from the right angle. But that means it has to do that at least three times before you know it's happening. So it takes you know, more than two years then to detect that signal. Kepler's only been up for one year. So we just have to be patient before we find out what the answer is. So we'll talk to you in another year, and hopefully we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, talk to Bill Baruki at NASA Ames. He's the PI of Kepler, and he'll tell you the answer in about another year, I think. <laughs> Regarding the search for life within the solar system, again, there's a lot of excitement, again, about Mars and, of course, uh, Europa, the, the moon of Jupiter. What's the status of those type of searches like? Well, you know, NASA is extremely interested in Mars. We uh, They send one or two spacecraft there basically every opportunity, which these opportunities, launch opportunities, come up about once every two years because of the way the orbits work. So Mars' surface doesn't look that habitable, but Mars' subsurface uh, may well be habitable if you go down to a depth of a kilometer or so, then all the models predict that it gets warm enough there to have liquid water. Of course, that's very difficult to get 
drill down a kilometer deep on Mars. And so in the shorter term, people are interested in looking for either evidence of present life or evidence of past life closer to Mars' surface. And, and again, the critical issue there is, is water. Is water, right. And you don't get liquid water right at Mars' surface today because the temperatures are very cold and the pressure is very low. So sometimes you do, it does get above the freezing point, but we think that the water, water ice sublimates. It goes directly from ice to gas rather than going through the liquid phase. Now, if you put some salt in it, get some salty water, you, you may be able to have liquid water near the surf, in, in the near subsurface, and people are very interested in that possibility. Where did Earth get its water? Well, the, the water comes in during the accretion process. Earth forms by small planetesimals that form larger ones, and then, you know, these collide with each other and eventually form the Earth. A lot of the water may have come in very late in the accretion process, so the, the material from which the bulk Earth accreted at one AU from the Sun, one astronomical unit, was probably pretty dry. But later on, sort of as the process was winding down, we think that the Earth got hit with a lot of planetesimals either from the asteroid belt or from beyond, and those planetesimals would be much more water-rich. And is the presumption then for extrasolar Earth-like planets that that would also be the way that they would get their water? Well, that's right. But, you know, things may be different from one solar system to the next. The asteroid belt, you know, that's between Mars and Jupiter. The reason we have an asteroid belt is probably because you've got the giant planet Jupiter just beyond there. And Jupiter is so big that it prevented a planet from forming within the asteroid belt region. And Jupiter also perturbs asteroids out of that region and, and occasionally sends them on Earth-crossing orbits. So if you go to a, another solar system, not all of them are likely to have a planet as big as Jupiter. And so the evolution of the terrestrial planets may be quite different in those systems. For those people who are interested in the, real, the efforts to find extrasolar habitable planets, where can they look? If you go to NASA websites, uh, for instance, if you just Google Kepler or Google the Kepler mission, you'll pop up on the Kepler homepage. And that, as I said, that's, that's the hottest thing around right now. There are these other planned missions like the, the Terrestrial Planet Finder missions and the SIM, SIM or SIM Light mission, which also have websites. So actually, if you just, if you learn the names of the missions that you're interested in, the, the best source of, easiest source of information these days is the web. And there's a lot of stuff up there. All right. Usually a good place to look. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, the new book is called How to Find a Habitable Planet. And Dr. Casting, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the uh, Grok Science Show. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Jim Casting discussing how to find a habitable planet. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned.
All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic intelligent life or non-intelligent life. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if you were an alien receiving a broadcast from them, would you think it's indicative of intelligent life or non-intelligent life on the planet Earth? <laughs> okay. All right, ready to play the game? Okay, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Uh, person number one, intelligent or non-intelligent life, talk show host, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, non-intelligent, definitely. I don't watch Jerry Springer, but I've, I've read about Jerry Springer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> probably a good thing to avoid. Uh, number two is Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton, I think she's more intelligent than she acts, so she actually gets a lot of publicity, so I, I actually have to say intelligent life. Oh, interesting. All right, well, number three is the astronomer Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was really a very intelligent guy, very bright guy, and all of science misses him, actually. He was a good spokesman for science. Indeed, indeed. Number four is uh, the golfer Tiger Woods. Tiger, unfortunately, has changed his classification. He's now in non-intelligent life and uh, trying to dig out of that hole at this moment. <laughs> it's a tough climb out of that hole. <laughs> All right, number five, finally, intelligent or non-intelligent life, it's the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. Sarah, bless her heart. I, I, I'm a Democrat, so I would classify her as uh, not-so-intelligent life. She's actually very successful at what she does, but I think we need people that think more carefully about what they say before they go around saying it. So I'd, so I'd, I'd say non-intelligent. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Professor Casting, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again, of course, talking about your book, How to Find a Habitable Planet. Thank you very much for your time. Okay. Sure thing. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.